is What Shall We Do About with Sam Robinson. Hello and welcome to What Shall We Do About, the show that tries to fix the world's less pressing problems. Remember when you were a kid and you wanted to know the answers to every question under the sun? Why is a rock called a rock? Where do flies go when it rains? And how does a TV get its pictures? Kids have a natural childlike wonder that adults just don't have. Why is that? Did Google kill our sense of curiosity? My guest this week is a Camilleroy man who is working hard to help kids, particularly Indigenous Australian kids, have their curiosity stoked. Named the New South Wales Young Australian of the Year for 2020, Corey Tutt founded Deadly Science, an initiative that provides remote schools with scientific resources and access to mentors working in STEM. Corey, thanks for uh, jumping on the pod, mate. Hey, thank you for having me. I've never had a any Australian of the Year or Young Australian of the Year or even New South Wales Young Australian <laughs> of the Year on the podcast. Congratulations on that honour. Uh, thank you so much. I guess first things first... You are doing incredible things uh, as far as uh, science and just helping kids and their sense of curiosity and wonder open up um, in all kinds of communities across Australia. But for you, um, when you were going through school, did you always think that you'd end up pursuing a career in science or something science related? It's, that's a really interesting question. So as a kid, I was always that kid that was picking up reptiles in the backyard. And, you know, if you ever found a blue-tongued lizard, I was probably the kid that was picking it up and telling you 10 million facts about it. So in many ways growing up, I was a natural scientist because I was always asking questions. Um, you know, I was always trying to work out what type of plant that was or what type of lizard that was or, you know, what does it do? What is its cool behaviour? And as I grew up, I kind of – I never really grew up of the stories I used to tell people about the animals and the first for learning about all things nature and you know, all things science. And I kind of, I wanted to be a zookeeper when I went through school. Um, and that, that was kind of my introduction to science. I imagine that, um, you know, when you're a kid and you think of what zookeepers do, you think that's a really cool job. Did you, did the reality of when you became a zookeeper live up to that expectation? Well, naturally, like, when I, when I became a zookeeper, I left school at 16 and I went from the south coast to a place called Boy Upbrook, and all of a sudden I'm looking after, you know, half a dozen joeys and I've got responsibility as a 16-year-old, which, you know, responsibility is a really funny thing because if um, if I don't look after those joeys, those joeys don't survive. So mm-hmm. you have to be on the ball. In terms of, yeah, being a zookeeper, it was, it was all that I wanted it to be but also a lot more that I didn't want it to be. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. What's it like to have that responsibility of, you know, you're a 16-year-old kid, I'm guessing not a whole lot of training behind you and suddenly you're caring for all these animals. Is there stress involved with that? Oh, look, there was um, was definitely stressful times, but there was also um, times of real growth. And I guess the the biggest thing for me was that, like, these animals kind of depended on me Mm. and, you know, I felt a lot of purpose. And I think what young people need the most of is purpose. You know, there's got to be a reason to get out of bed in the morning, go to work. And, you know, the Joeys gave me a lot of purpose that really, you know, that really strengthened my interest and and improved me a lot as a person as well. Suddenly I wasn't just cooking for myself. I was cooking, you know, I was heating up bottles for Joeys and 
you know, making sure they were fed, making sure they were warm as well because um, we had the orphans, so we had to put them in little sacks so they they stayed warm. And, you know, there was, there was that side of it as well, um, administering medications and, you know, being someone that never really took medications as a kid, um, it was a big challenge to learn how to do that for something else that was alive. Was there also a sense that, I mean, you mentioned when you were younger that you are always intrigued and curious about different animals and creatures. As you head into a zoo where, yes, you've got to look after the animals, were you also uh, soaking up a lot more knowledge about animals in the process and keeping that curiosity going? Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the biggest thing, which is going to sound a bit odd that I learned from being at the zoo, is actually I, I really enjoyed being around people mm. and learning about people and how they, like, what quirks what sort of works with them and what what they what quirks they have with animals um at the zoo it was really great because suddenly um when i'd moved from wa and i worked at shawhaven zoo it was i was working with crocodiles now i was working with camels i was working with water buffalo and you know we'd have these conversations with kids and people coming into the park and you'd ask them what a buffalo's horns are made out of and they'll go oh well it's metal it's wood <laughs> it's bone but then you get them to look at their hands or their their um their hair and you say well that's that's keratin and that's what water buffalo's horns are made out of and then all of a sudden you've built a connection with that person and um because you've shared some knowledge and that's mm. kind of what that's kind of what our people and our culture is about it's about sharing knowledge and you know so i actually felt a really strong connection in my culture whilst being a zookeeper did you expect that would be the case when you went into it oh yeah like um when I was a kid, I had my grandfather, who's sadly no longer with us, but every day he would give me a, like every time I talked to him, he would give me a task and it was to tell him something new that I'd learnt that mm. day and something he didn't know. And he was very smart. So he would give me a book and he would personally read the book and then he would, he would kind of test me to see if I'd actually read the book and <laughs> he would know where it all is. And, you know, it was... I guess, you know, I it's it's something that just sort of stayed with me. Um and I was really lucky to have that. And and I think it's it's a cool thought to think that you are even in demonstrating those kids and even what in what you're doing now, which we'll get to soon, you are kind of helping that next generation find that opportunity to learn and find things out for themselves. Well, I mean, you would you would know as well when when you go to school, science isn't particularly you know, it is not really appealing when you're in high school because it's it's the sort of the Magoo science. It's the, you know, it's the boring stuff. Yeah. But um, when you start to think that science is all around you and you start questioning things like why is the sky blue, why is the grass green, you know, that is the imagination that kids need and adults need as well. That's how we invent things. If I'm right, your career moved from being a zookeeper to being an alpaca shearer. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, I'd actually, when I was working at the zoo, I'd, I'd lost my best friend. He'd passed away. And that, you know, as an 18-year-old, that was a really, really tough time in my life. You know, I, I was used to sort of loss growing up um, because, you know, I had a lot of relatives that passed away and friends. and But this was someone that was, like, close. And, you know, we'd, we would speak every day, we'd have coffee together. And that was really hard because... You know, as an 18-year-old, you're still trying to sort of find your place in the world. Like, you're trying to work out who it is you actually are and where you fit. Mm. Um, and I, in some ways, I'm still working that one out. But um, 
I saw an ad in the paper and like the, just the, you know, the joy I got from um, telling someone about a deaf adder or a crocodile or a camel or, you know, that kind of left me for a bit. Mm -hmm. And I still, I knew I still wanted to work with animals, but I sort of needed a change. And I saw an ad in the Illawarra Mercury, um, which was for an alpaca handler. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm handling tiger snakes, crocodiles, llamas. <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, I didn't know the difference between a llama and an alpaca before I started. And I feel a bit stupid now because I um, went to this fella's house wearing a suit and he goes, you start Monday. <laughs> <laughs> And, for, and, for an and did he did he assume that you had a bigger knowledge of alpacas and llamas than you did? Oh, definitely not. I mean, he. I think I was the best of a bad bunch. Okay, um, right. <laughs> and like he had a couple of people apply, but I didn't really. I wasn't someone that sort of took a backward step. I was kind of someone that you know just would jump into anything. Mm. And he was like, "This fella's kind of keen," so he he feels like the one. And um, that was kind of the journey we went on. And, you know, I'll tell you a bit of a story. The first alpaca that we ever saw together mm. um, headbutted me in the face. Like, and it was almost like a, it was like a, it was a real wake up moment for me because, because I, you know, I was still mourning the loss of my friend and I was kind of going through the motions as you do. Um, and this alpaca headbutted me and cracked me in the cheekbone and, you know, I've still got scars from it today and it still hurts sometimes. Um, but I kind of see that as a bit of a wake up moment for me because I could have easily given up our packer shearing. I could have given up the animal industry. I could have given up the things that made me happy. But there was something in me that drove me to keep shearing alpacas. <laughs> so are you saying without this um, alpaca that deadly science would not be? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think... <laughs> there's times in your life where you need to be resilient. Yeah. And it was a, it was a moment for me where I needed to find an inner strength from somewhere to get me through that rough patch in my life. And, you know, the alpaca was kind of like a, and it sounds really funny, but it's kind of like a wake up call when it, <laughs> when it headbutted me in the face. And that to me was like, it was, you know, that was the moment I realized that I was actually a resilient person. Mm. Um, and that I needed to like, and when things come up and, you know, life gives you challenges that I always think back to that moment where I had a fractured eye socket and a cheekbone that was cracked mm. and I could have easily given up, but I kept, I kept working um, as silly as that sounds. <laughs> it's amazing though. What, what, at what point, how long did you shear our packers for? And, and what's the kind of journey from there into, um, creating deadly science or coming up with that idea? So the average um, alpaca shearing season in Australia and New Zealand goes for about eight months. Okay. Um, so we used to start up at Rockhampton and um, work our way down the coast um, to the Southern Highlands, to Harndorf in Adelaide. And it was, to me, like it was a, we did this for about three years. Um, and then we'd go to Dunedin in New Zealand and shear over Christmas. And it was, I had jobs in between but I wasn't ready to leave alpaca shearing, kind of. Mm -hmm. Like, so that's, you know, you'd think after a season, you'd think, oh, yeah, that's enough. But there was, I just needed to sort of, I, I needed time away. And in that time, like, my sister got married and all these things were happening around around me. But I was, I was really happy to just 
sort of hop in the car and drive for 12 hours and um, see some of the countryside. And, you know, it was kind of like unofficial counselling sessions. Um, James Dixon, the guy we ended up sharing together, it was like him and I would have conversations because we'd be stuck in the car for 16 hours Mm. or stuck on a plane or, you know, and it was was a really magical experience. Um, I've got a really funny story about my sister's wedding that I'll share with you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were sharing down in Victoria and my sister was getting married the next day and we had this um, sort of old station wagon we used to use as a Commodore and the timing belt snapped in the motor. No. <laughs> and it was the day before the wedding and it was like <laughs> literally we had to we had to leave like that hour to get back. Yeah. And my sister, it was on the Illawarra, so it was like um, Tara, my sister Tara was getting married in Wollongong and like we were stuck in Melbourne no. and we quickly ordered a part like an hour before, an hour before the, um, the shop closed mm. and we spent by torchlight spent hours putting this timing belt back on doing it yourself, doing it ourselves. <laughs> and we drove back and we slept at like Wagga for about an hour, but we kept swapping the drive and we just, I just got back in the door at like four in the morning in Wollongong and wow. I had to be up at six to um, get ready for my sister's wedding wow. and go and do photos and stuff. And yeah, it, again, it was like James, um, yeah, it was just this determination factor that we had to get back for the wedding. And it was, um, it's always a fun story that I like to remember. Yeah, man. It sounds like such a, um, look, nomadic lifestyle wasn't the right word, but you, you know, you're, you're covering a lot of ground and a lot of country. In fact, even over the seas, with a job like that, like as far as your indigenous culture and heritage, was that part of it as well? Were you just enjoying soaking that up and seeing the country? Yeah, well, my pop died in 2011 and, um, you know, it was, it was probably a couple of months before I'd actually started shearing alpacas. And I didn't know this about his life until I actually became a shearer, but he had been a shearer himself, right. um, not of alpacas, but a sheep shearer. And it was it was really weird. We were in a shearing shed in I think it was in Adelaide um, somewhere, and I saw the initial CW on a wall, and it I just instantly knew that it was probably and you know underneath it said Spider and that was his nickname, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that he was a shearer. And then I you know sort of came back and after I saw those initials, I was kind of like one of those points where you just you think oh far out that looks familiar. Yeah. And um, it was, he'd actually notched it into the wall um, of the shearing shed in the 70s. Wow. And this shearing shed had no roof. Oh. <laughs> it was like, it was really old. Um, and it was like, I just, yeah. And I ended up finding out that he was a sheep shearer. And, um, you know, he was an Aboriginal fellow that was um, shearing sheep around Walgut and Grafton and Moree. And he'd, uh, he'd obviously gone to Adelaide. Yeah, there was, there was lots of connections back to my culture. Um, and it seemed like you know, everywhere I went, there was, there was always something that led me back to my family and led me back to my heritage. Um, whether that be, I'd be traveling through a community and, you know, I'd be traveling for an Aboriginal community because you, you do that when you're shearing and you're going around all these mm. places and you would, you would get chatting to people and you're like, Oh, you know what, you know, my cousin or, you know, my uncle, or, you know, um, this person that I know. And, there's always that connection and there's always that, you know, when you get to see some of the parts of Australia that are really dry and um, some parts are really poor, then you you start to get a greater appreciation for what's out there. 
Let's go to Deadly Science, which is your creation and really your, uh, I guess, it's still in some ways not your main job. It's kind of like a bit of a, a side project for you, but still it's doing incredible things. Can you explain where the idea came from and what Deadly Science is achieving? So after I finished alpaca shearing, I worked for the Animal Welfare League for a bit and then I ended up studying and becoming an animal technician and working at the University of Sydney. And, you know, it was one of those sort of scenarios where I I thought to myself, you know what, I haven't really met any other Aboriginal animal technicians and, you know, or Aboriginal people working in STEM. And Mm. I wanted to do something and it was... I'd been part of the AIM program, the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience program back when I was 16. And it, it had helped me a lot because I was able to meet other Aboriginal zookeepers. And that really helped me, propel me to to believe I could do it. And, you know, belief is so important in this space. If you can't be what you can't see. And if you don't, you know, if you if you don't believe you can, then the greatest limitations are going to be the ones you put on yourself. Mm. And, you know, I started talking to these kids in Redfern as part of the AIM program. So I started volunteering and going to their failure days and they had, you know, they had the army there, they had all these um, sort of like, you know, the the particular organisations that they think that Aboriginal kids would work for. And um, I kind of went there and I was like, there was no science. There was nothing to do with science or animals. And I started doing these talks and, I mean, I didn't have all the fancy posters or like, um, any of the, the career merch that are going to like attract kids and get them to choose a sort of path in science. But I started doing these talks with just my iPad or like my phone or just me um, on a Friday afternoon. And we'll talk about space station. We'll talk about animals. We'll talk about blue tongue lizards. We'll talk about absolutely anything. And quickly these talks become really popular. And I discovered that these kids, you know, again, they're not really told they can do science. They're not really told, you know, um, if you think, if you think in a certain way, that is a science question. You know, they think about the old traditional ways of periodic tables and all the boring stuff, but science can mean different things. You can be a sports scientist, you can be um, a statistician, you can do so many things in STEM and science. And I, it was kind of like that wasn't really taught to them. Mm. And these talks just become really popular. And then, yeah, sort of AIM shut that that program down and I knew they were shutting it down. So I kind of, I decided that I wanted to do something more and I wanted to do something a bit more meaningful because, you know, if the, the keenness and the enthusiasm was there to learn about science, like, and, you know, the belief wasn't there, surely the resources weren't there. Mm. So I Googled some most remote schools and I found out just how, decimated their STEM resources were. It wasn't even something they considered teaching um, because they just didn't have the books. And then I came across one school that had 15 books in the whole school. Um, and that, Yeah, and, like, you know, people, a lot of people in Australia won't know that, you know, there, there's this great perception that, and it's a miss, it's, it's so wrong that Aboriginal people get all this money and funding and, and whatnot, but there is schools out there that are just grossly underfunded. Mm. And half the battle is getting the kids to school because if you don't have books in your school and you don't have the resources, then the kids are not going to find school interesting. You know, these kids shouldn't be defined by race or colour. They're just kids, you know, Uh, and kids love science and they love, you know, learning and there's this natural curiosity. And, you know, when I found this school, I just packed up every single book I owned 
and then sort of Deadly Science was born and it just kept growing from there. So at, at its essence, Deadly Science began uh, with you kind of sending out books to, to schools and then uh, and now my understanding is that, that people can get involved, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I actually started working two jobs yeah. <laughs> to afford the books at first. So I was working as an animal technician at the University of Sydney. Um, <laughs> I was working 38 hours a week and, you know, working at the hand rob pet hotels up at Dufferley's Forest in Sydney. And I was actually paying for all the books myself. And it wasn't just books. It was telescopes. It was um, Skype sessions. It was like the works. Um, and then someone, a friend of mine said, you're, you know, you're working too hard and you need to stop. And actually, coincidentally, I put a scalpel blade for my finger at uh, my work as an animal technician and I ended up with like six stitches. No. And um, it was because I was just so exhausted mm. because I was I was working, um, I was starting at 5 a.m. and work, finishing at 2, driving home, getting in my hand rub uniform and then running to the post office and posting off books. Uh, and that was something I did probably three or four times a week. You know, the schools the schools that need STEM resources are, are ever-growing. Um, so just to give you context, when I started doing that, you know, I had one to three schools and now I've got 104. Wow. Um, yeah, and then someone decided, like, hey, start a GoFundMe. Because if you start a GoFundMe, people will get involved and they can donate and then you can do even more. You know, I set myself a little modest goal. I was like, I want $1,000. Like, I just want to raise $1,000. Um, and to date, I've raised 123000 And that that's just from community support. Yeah, it's incredible. It's been, um, yeah, like, we haven't, you know, we don't get any government funding or anything like that. You know, we do sponsorships with businesses and stuff. But it's been purely, you know, this thing has been created by the people and it's for the people as well. It's been a really hectic sort of few months. And I guess even still, like I, I know in setting up this interview with you uh, and trying to find a time that worked, like you are already, I mean, you're still working really big hours to try and make this happen. You know, you're, you're doing your job, but you're still making sure that there's time on the side for, for deadly science. Um, are you exhausted? Are you trying to work out ways that you can make more time for it or even hope that it could be a, a full-time gig in itself doing deadly science? Yeah, definitely. I, I work at the Matilda Centre at the moment at the University of Sydney as a research assistant, and that's my 35 hours a week. And then I estimate I probably put about 45 hours a week into deadly science. And Wow. Um, and, you know, this, like, um, you know, it, it does get exhausting sometimes, I'll admit, mm. but the best thing for me is that, like, I know I'm making such a huge difference. Um, and... You know, not every kid I work with is going to be a scientist, mm. but at least for a moment they believe they can. And it's and them believing for a moment they can do science and that they have these resources that are available to them and science is fun and education is fun is better than not having those moments. Because in life we have these brain sparkers. And, you know, if I like, you know, I was telling you about the blue tongue lizard, right? If you're a kid and you pick up a blue tongue lizard and, you know, that's a really exciting thing. Or like you, you know, lift up a rock and you find all these worms underneath it. You know, that's an exciting thing. But that is a form of science yeah. because you're still working out 
what these things are. And, you know, I think every kid should just have the access to those things. You know, they should have the access to look for a telescope and wonder what's out there, you know, and then the same with books, you know, why can't they pick up a book and open it up and just find out about a cool squid when you're in the desert or a whale or, you know, a fish. I guess that leads us to um, the topic that I've got you on to talk about, and that's curiosity. How have you seen kids, as they've received these books and these telescopes, seen their curiosity grow? Do you do you get feedback? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's nonstop feedback. But, um, like, just to give you... A um, little story again from um, Monday. I had a I had kids from Groot Island unlock their foster carer's um, phone and call me to ask how glass was made. Oh you right, know, or, yeah. Or you know, like ask me why do squids have ink or like did they use them for pens, which they did. You know, yeah, um, right. or wow. you know, ask me about cuttlefish. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the, it, and that's that's just from the books that we've sent. You know, and then there's the there's the other the other side of it, the mentoring side, where I have a young fella named Trey who um, I gave him a call because he got kicked off the Clontar football team, and I all I said to him was like, you know what, like the greatest limitations are those you put on yourself, and that you know just just try your best every single day, and it will work out. And he ended up going from an E in science to a C and scored 76% on his biochemistry exam. And this kid, you know, this kid couldn't really like read or anything when I first started talking to him. And now he's one of the smartest in the class. And it was, it was purely him. You know, I, I've done really nothing for him. Like I've done really nothing but be a mentor, Mm. you know, and it's sometimes the best leadership qualities are, is just allowing um, people to see what they can be. I'm just so blown away by you, Corey, and to think, like, how, how old are you? I'm 27. Yeah. Turning 28 soon, very soon. And mate, like, <laughs> even that's – like, I'm 33, and, like, I just feel like, man, I just wish I had the the drive that you have and just the – I mean, the capacity you have, of course, but just I just am so blown away by what you're doing. And, obviously, it's a team effort, people giving to this to enable it to happen. I feel as though in some ways you mentioned that science has been left behind for a lot of these schools. You know, there's not many resources. You're sending those resources. But as far as my understanding is, is that um, like Indigenous culture has a deep history of scientific knowledge and learning, right? Oh, definitely. And, you know, it's part of the, you know, it's part of the narrative we've been taught where we don't think of Aboriginal people in this this light. but. Mm. You know, um, it's been highlighted with the recent bushfires, you know, the Indigenous practices of uh, backburning and cultural burning. But there's also, you know, there's um, all different sorts of science. We were the first forensic scientists, Aboriginal people. And I, I can tell you why is that, you know, we have bush trackers that used to track animals and track footprints. And that is a form of forensic science. Mm. If you look at, you know, we, we often employ... <laughs> bush trackers to find missing people in the bush so that science has been well respected for a really long time Mm. you know we had the world's first fish traps um, on the north coast which were really great they were humane traps that didn't kill all the fish so we only took what we needed we didn't kill everything that's a form of science even if you look at um, rock paintings for example and you know we can we can go along this sort of hunter-gatherer storyline that has been sold to us for the hundreds of years but every day it's being proven incorrect 
Um, and, it, you know, one thing that I sort of challenge your listeners to is, you know, if you look at rock paintings, for example, in caves, they last the test of time. They last thousands and thousands of years. And the paintings that the Europeans did, they still have to be re-oiled and redone and maintained. But we have these paintings in Australia that last thousands of years and they're like still there mm. today and nothing gets done to maintain them. They just get protected, but they're not really maintained at all. And that's a form of science as well, which is the art of storytelling. And part of science is deoring it, which is do your own research, but also telling people about it so they can do theirs. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, as far as curiosity is concerned, do you think that we lose a sense of curiosity as we grow older? Like, I, oh, I, like I feel like a kid's sense of imagination and curiosity is so helpful, right? But when we grow older, we kind of just, do you think we give up on curiosity? I think we do. I think we sort of get pushed into structure. Um, and sometimes structure is really good, but also it can be really bad and detrimental. We get stuck in the same sort of patterns. But, you know, if we look at, say, you know, crazy scientists like Nikola Tesla, for example, you had all these great ideas and, you know, Elon Musk has taken some of his ideas and turned them into reality or, you know, Leonardo da Vinci who had plans to invent a helicopter. We need imaginative people to come up with the new technologies that's going to make life easier and it's going to make better, make it better for people and have a more equal society. So we need people that are, are brave enough to make a change and imagine things. And I think as adults, we kind of get stuck in the, the rat race a little bit. We're like, oh, we've got to pay bills. We've got to, you know, look after our kids. Every day is just a nine to five. But, you know, we shouldn't lose the ability to imagine and, you know, come up with things. And I think, you know, often what happens is if you come up with an idea, your friends or your colleagues or your bosses are kind of like, oh, you know, that's a bit of a dumb idea, you know, and then you get discouraged from it. But yeah. even even the smallest ideas and probably enough to manifest are a great idea. Do you think that Google has helped or maybe not helped curiosity? So I imagine that, like, obviously, we want to find out an answer. We turn to Google. We look it up. But often mm. the the sense of adventure and exploration is lost through just typing something into a search engine. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one because I think, I think Google's great. I think the ability to have an information source in the palm of your hand and you can find the answer immediately is great. But also, again, it goes to the same thing is that if you can Google it, and you can't find an answer for saying, then there's no harm in picking up a book and trying to figure it out yourself, you know, or trying to observe something yourself. And I think that Google has actually opened doors for a lot of people to to discover things. And, you know, we can get too caught up on it. It is a good thing, but you can have too much of a good thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we're, we're almost out of time, Corey, and I do want to ask you the question, uh, what shall we do about curiosity? I think we should encourage it. I think that we need curious minds in the world to, you know, discover brand new things. Like if you had said to me 10 years ago that we could 3D print a car or, you know, 3D print something, you know, you wouldn't afford of that. But mm. a curious person came up with that. SpaceX, for example, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Elon, but he had an idea. He was curious and he's now sent 
a spaceship into orbit. There are so many great things. Um, if you look at the fellas that have got sort of the smart drums in the, the harbour at the moment that are collecting, recycling waste, you know, they're collecting all the plastic. That was an idea that has turned into a reality. So ideas are important. Inventions are important. Belief factor is really important. And it goes to my point, the greatest limitations in life are those that we put on ourselves. Corey, I'm blown away by you. Um, I'm thankful that you are here doing your work. And um, I'm sure that many people listening to this now would love to be part of your work and support your work. How can we do it? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can visit my website, deadlyscience.icu. Donate to the GoFundMe if you can. I I know things are tight for a lot of people at the moment, but your donations are greatly used. Um, they all go into the schools and providing resources to these kids that may not get the chance to have a book or something new. So follow us on social media. If you want to see wholesome, good news, great stuff, just check us out because, yeah, I think there's a lot of negativity in the world and I hope that um, Deadly Science is, you know, one, changing some of the misconceptions that people have on Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, but also providing some really good news because there's a lot of bad news in the world at the moment and we need good news. Mm, absolutely. Well, Corey, you've given us good news in this podcast this week, so thanks so much for jumping on. It's been a, it's been so great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You can keep up with Corey and Deadly Science on Instagram at deadly underscore science underscore au. And if you would like to contribute to the excellent work of Deadly Science, as Corey mentioned, you can do it at deadlyscience.icu. The links are all in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this show. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a review as it helps others come across it too. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast where you heard it to get fresh episodes in your feed every Tuesday morning. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at What Shall We Do Pod and on Twitter at What Shall We Pod. What Shall We Do About is hosted and produced by me, Sam Robinson, with production support from Ali Barnes and original theme music by Chad Gardner. See you next time.